0: Only in COVID time do you get your mask stuck trying to move it. Sorry about that. Just gonna put it back on. <laughs> For those of you that don't know me, I'm Pastor Sandy Richter, and I am pastoring a church plant out of Oak Park, Illinois. You all pray for us every week, which we so appreciate, and uh, some of you among us are here, Roger Botner and Brandon, and I do know your last name, sorry, Burdette, and (laughs) my family, Um, and we're just so grateful for the opportunity to be here with you tonight, and we thank you for all the ways that you love and support us. Um, If I haven't met you before, and there's many of you that I haven't, I'd love to meet you after the service just so that I can have a face to the names that I know have come during these last few months. Um, But yeah, thank you for your support. So now, let's turn to Joshua 7. Today's passage is a cautionary tale, and a rather difficult one at that. And I want to say before we start that if you were not here a couple weeks ago to hear Father Kevin, where God uh, orders genocide, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to that. That really sets uh, the groundwork for how to read Joshua. It is a very different book than what we're used to reading on a a daily basis. So I just want to say that's a good background um, for the conversation that we're going to have tonight. And I'm not going to touch on that most, but just touch on more of Aiken's story. So, as I said, this is a cautionary tale, but not as it might first appear about the cost of a single mistake. Instead, this is a cautionary tale about pride, about the misuse of privilege and what that quality of heart costs. Now, I want to acknowledge right off the bat that privilege is uncomfortable to talk about. Those of us that recognize we have privilege often don't know what to do with it. Those of us that don't have certain privilege are often hurt because of that. So if you notice feelings of defensiveness, pain, confusion, or disorientation during the sermon, that's okay. I would really encourage you not to push those things away, but instead to honestly present your thoughts and feelings to God and ask for the grace to stay open to what the Spirit might have for us. So privilege at its base is a special right or advantage granted or available to a particular person or group. Now that's a lot of words, but simply it can be small things, like when I was in high school, when you were a senior, you got the privilege of being able to go off campus for lunch. But there are also more large-scale things, like the privilege of having good access to education, or quality food, or affordable health care. Israel, as God's chosen people, enjoyed many privileges flowing from the covenant promise God gave to their ancestor Abraham to bless him and his descendants and to give them a land of their own. The Israelites had the privilege of hearing from God through the prophets, the privilege of God's presence in the cloud by day and fire by night, the privilege of protection from their enemies, provision of daily bread, and now the privilege of the promised land. These privileges were given by God as a means to witness to God's goodness and to love their neighbors. As God told Abraham in Genesis 22, through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed. So privilege was not to be an end in itself, it was to be a gift that was given for the good of the whole world. Now, other forms of privilege are not of God. Dominique Gilliard, in his latest book, Subversive Witness, points out that, quote, racism, patriarchy, classism, and other forms of privilege and the isms that produce these privileges are not a part of God's original intent, but are a consequence of sin. All humans are given certain privileges simply by being made in the image of God but many of us also enjoy privileges that come, as Gilliard writes, as a direct consequence of sinful systems or that live in this gray area that we don't really fully understand. For instance, for me, the privilege of attending Wheaton College was afforded to me largely because I had attended a highly ranked high school where I could take AP classes and learn to do well on standardized tests. Sinful systems of redlining, created the exclusivity of my high school, and sinful systems of wealth and materialism helped to build my hometown. The privileges that I enjoyed were at least in part a consequence of sin. Nevertheless, Gileard writes, it is undeniable that God entrusts people with privilege and power, with a missional purpose of creating life flourishing, and fostering shalom, where death, destruction, and oppression have reigned for far too long. Unfortunately, we do not always use our privilege for the sake of others, and our text today is a cautionary tale of what happens when privilege is exploited for selfish gain. As we delve into the text tonight, we're invited by God's grace to examine our own hearts for those places where covetousness, fear, pride, have caused us to misuse the things that have been entrusted to us so we might be led by God into a better way. So the chapter centers on Achan, but right away we find that, that his sin is related to the whole nation, starting in one. but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. And you'll have to forgive me, I'm using the NIV and not the NLT, which is what's written there, so hopefully you can translate. Uh, Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The central problem in the chapter is framed around Achan having taken some of the devoted things. But what will become apparent is that this outward sin of theft is related for all of the Israelites to an inward sickness of heart. Achan, the scouts whom Joshua sends, and even Joshua himself seem to presume that because they are the people of God, they have certain inherent rights and privileges that are not necessarily even dependent on God, but are theirs for the taking. In each instance, the people of God exchange privilege for the holiness and grace of God And the narrative shows the devastating cost this has for the entire community. Let's first look at Achan's abuse of privilege in taking the devoted things. During the time of Israel's conquest, God established rules around warfare, one of which related to the spoils that were taken from conquered tribes. These objects could either be divided among the Israelites or dedicated to God for holy use. In which case, there would be plunder, which was divided, or there were devoted things that were devoted to God. In the aftermath of the great battle of Jericho, God specifically commanded Israel through Joshua that, and this is coming from chapter six, starting in 17. The city of Jericho and all that is in it are to be devoted to God. And then the Lord goes on to explain that the people should keep away from these devoted things, so that they would not bring about their own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, he says, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. Because Jericho was the first city taken in the promised land, it will hold a special place in the life and memory of God's people. Everything in it is to be devoted to God so that the people remember that the promised land belongs to God and is given to them to share and enjoy as a gift. There's also a play on words here that's difficult to see in the English. Now, I do not read Hebrew, but I'm trusting the sources that I've used here. Um, so those of you who know Hebrew better than I am, you can ha- we can have a conversation later if I got this wrong. But from what I understand, the root of the word for devoted things, which is used in chapter six and seven, is also the root of things devoted to destruction in chapter seven. This is because when the spoils of war were devoted to God, most of them were destroyed in order to rid the land of their corrupting influence. Some of the more precious items, however, were devoted to the Lord's sacred use, and these are the devoted things among the things devoted to destruction. So that'll become important in a minute. These devoted things, although precious, still have a potential corrupting influence as they're related to foreign people and gods. Therefore, the people are warned to keep away from them, lest they bring about their own destruction. Achan, as we know, did not heed this warning. Instead, he assumed that because he was a soldier of Israel who had fought in the battle of Jericho, These items were rightfully his. In verses 11 and 13, God specifically uses the term devoted things to refer to what Achan has stolen. But starting in verse 20, when Achan confesses to Joshua, it's clear that he doesn't see them as belonging to God. So here we read starting in 20. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. Yes, Achan admitted to coveting and taking, but seeking to justify himself, he reframes the devoted things as plunder. The privilege that Achan had that generally would afford him part of the plunder, he now abused to justify his theft. And sadly, as God predicted, in flaunting God's commands and abusing his privilege, Achan brought trouble to the whole nation of Israel, to those he loved, and even in the end, to the detriment of his own life. The scouts also presumed upon their privilege as God's people. Having won victory at Jericho, they seemed to think that Ai would be easy. Starting in verse 2, it says, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. Now contrast this overconfidence with the confidence in chapter six when taking Jericho. There Joshua commanded the armies to shout for the Lord had given them the city. Their confidence in that case was in God and God's miraculous provision. But here there is no mention of God's power or presence, no mention of seeking the Lord's wisdom, The scouts, perhaps drunk on their recent victory, presume that they can easily take the next city on their own strength, even though it was God's strength that had enabled them to take Jericho. The cost of this presumed privilege is the senseless loss of 36 lives and a loss of purpose in entering the promised land. Joshua, too, seems to be infected by this arrogance. Upon hearing of the army's defeat in Ai, Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord and remained there until evening. But then you notice something when he begins to pray. Unlike his predecessor Moses, who went before the Lord in repentance and concern for God's name, Joshua sounds a lot like the whining Israelites in the desert. Verse 7 says... Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? You can just hear, of course he's upset, but you can also hear a complete owning of what they've done and a complete attempt to blame God for the fact that they couldn't defeat Ai. Now that God had led them into the promised land, it seems that the people had forgotten him. They had not taken seriously his warnings about the devoted things, and they had presumed future victory as a chosen people. Sure, they'd take the privilege of being the people of God, but they no longer felt the need to submit themselves to God or to God's ways. But God, in God's grace, knows that this this arrogant presumption of privilege only leads to destruction which is what the rest of the chapter painfully portrays. The only way forward for Israel is to repent and turn towards the better way. Starting in verse 11, God said, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. To their credit, Israel repents and rids the land of the devoted things, humbling themselves before God. As I read this chapter in preparation for tonight, I sensed a strong word of warning for the American church, especially as I read that final warning. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction you cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. I have to say when I look out on our world and at our church, there are far too many impulses among us that seem to be devoted to destruction, particularly destruction of whomever or whatever we deem are the enemies of our rights and privilege. I could name many things, but I'm just gonna let it sit for a minute as those come to your mind. Church, we need a better way. Or else we will literally end up destroying ourselves and destroying this beautiful world that the Lord has given us. We need the way of Jesus who did not consider equality with God, which was, by the way, his right and privilege as something to be grasped, but humbled himself and took the form of the servant, who trusted God even to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we look at the world and we see things devoted to destruction, we say, okay, The world doesn't know the good news. But when we look at the church and we see these impulses to destruction, what excuse do we have? I don't enjoy bringing these kind of words. This socked me in the face when I was reading it, and as I worked on the sermon, I just thought, okay, Lord, really? Is this really what you have to say? But I'm saying it to myself. And I I actually, I just want to admit the fact that I really struggle with this myself. I enjoy so many privileges that I don't really even understand. And then the moment that I start to understand them, I get paralyzed and I don't know what to do with them. But I'm committing before you today to do the hard work of acknowledging privilege and then do the hard work of accepting the grace of God to help me to lay down those privileges for the sake of the world. It is only the power of this Jesus living in us that can destroy whatever in us is still devoted to destruction. May we say yes to this power in each of our lives, in this church, in Christ our peace, and in the church universal, so that God would cleanse us and lead us to be the better way so that we might witness to the goodness of God's glory that looks so different than what the world has to offer. And so that we might join him in loving others for the sake of the world. Amen.